Welcome to the Royal Shakespeare Company. Welcome to Interval Drinks, a podcast by the Royal Shakespeare Company in which we talk to artists who inspire us. Opening a show, it's just the sort of terror of, is this conceivable? I can remember a sequence of words in front of other humans. I can remember what to do. I can not fall over. It just might not be actually possible. Theatre is like Power Rangers. It's like when all the Power Rangers come together and make one big Power Ranger. Because it's great and people will have a great time and people deserve to have a great time, damn it. (laughs) Have you collected your drinks? Then let's begin. Catching up in the interval this week, we have actor Mark Quartley with David Tennant. Well, hello and welcome to Interval Drinks. I'm Mark Quartley, an actor currently playing Henry in the Henry VI plays here at the RSC, as the company nears the culmination of their history cycle. A cycle begun back in 2013 with my guest in the title role of Richard II. You will, unless you've been living in a rock for the last 20 years, you'll likely know him as the mercurial shape-shifting talent that has graced your screens as the Doctor, Barty Crouch Jr., Crowley, the demon from Good Omens, Dennis Nielsen, Giacomo Casanova, Phileas Fogg and countless others. However, on stage, he also has a string of Shakespearean roles to his name. An artistic associate of the RSC, he joined the company in 1996 to play Touchstone in As You Like It and went on to play Edgar, Antiphilus of Syracuse, Romeo, Lysander, Hamlet, Barone and the aforementioned Richard II. He has described Shakespeare's plays as Olympic events for actors and fixed points in the careers of actors down the centuries. It is my enormous pleasure to welcome to the podcast Mr David Tennant. David, welcome to Interval Drinks. Mark, you're very kind. How lovely. <laughs> what a lovely uh, introduction that was. Quite, quite a resume of, of Shakespearean roles alongside the ones that people might know you more for. Uh, yeah, I suppose, yeah. Well, I'm very old now. It's interesting you said Richard III was... Richard, Richard III? Richard II was... Uh, Richard III hasn't happened yet. Richard II was uh, nine years ago now. That's extraordinary. Nine years since I've done a Shakespeare play on stage. I thought I'd done a Shakespeare play more recently than that. That's quite... That, that's, uh, that's a shocker. Well, your throne is currently standing very proud on the stage of the RST and, and looking pretty good, is it, You're still using the same throne, of course. We are still using that amazing throne, which it, you'll remember is a replica of the coronation throne from Westminster. Yes. Is it comfy? Not really, but I think it's probably a good thing that it's not, yes. if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, Henry VI was never that comfortable <laughs> sitting on a throne, let's face it. <laughs> He certainly wasn't. <laughs> now, I need to ask you, as we are uh, at the Interval Drinks podcast, yes. would, what is your Interval Drink of choice? Probably a G&T, I think. Yeah, I think... With, with a garnish? I, I, I'm happy for a garnish. It depends what theatre you're in, really, how adventurous they are, doesn't it? Uh, here's a cheeky question for you. Have you ever left a show during an interval? Yes, I have. <laughs> but, I, but I'm not going to tell you what. Do you know what? Here's something even cheekier. <laughs> I was, I, I left a show at an interval, and this is as much as you're going to get out of me, with the artistic director of the Royal Shakespeare Company. Oh, that's brilliant. <laughs> we both went to see a show together, and we both left together. I wonder if he remembers that. How do you negotiate that conversation? Does one of you look at the other and... I think it was a no-brainer, I'm afraid to say. Oh, okay. I think we just went, oh, come on, life's too short. Um, so, so let's move to the other side of the wings. Yeah. How do you typically spend the interval backstage 
Are you very focused? Do you use it as a chance to relax? I, I would say once I find my routine, I stick to it. But I wouldn't say my routine from show to show is necessarily consistent. So it might be a social time, depending on the cast and the play. It mm -hmm. might be just lock the dressing room door and sit very quietly. Um, it might be, this is the point where I have a cup of tea and three squares of chocolate. You, and you say three squares of chocolate. That, it, is that a superstition? No. Or is that because, well, it worked the previous time? I don't know why that is. And I, 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 it, it was one very specific show, and I, I couldn't tell you now which one it was, where I used to have three squares of chocolate every time. <laughs> it's just that I, I, I find comfort in the routine of it. I suppose being on stage is so kind of... It's a bit like jumping out of a plane, isn't it? And, and there are so few mm. elements of that you can control that I guess I try and nail down the things I can control to stop, yes. you know. Because it's, it, it's all a sort of contest of nerve, isn't it? Um, being on stage. I've heard you say before that um, during a run of a show, you can have that voice in the back of your head that all actors hate, mm. which is the one saying... You can't do this. And, and often in the midst of even giving a speech. Yeah. So is, is it about controlling that voice? Or? I think so, yes. It is, yeah. Because it's, it, it's when you allow your brain to start winding you up, when you allow this, those sort of little anxieties in. Because they're usually when the big anxieties have slightly receded. I don't know if you found this, but, it, but that, you know, opening a show, it's just the sort of terror of is this conceivable that we can do this, I can remember a sequence of words in front of other humans, I can remember what to do, I can not fall over. There's, there's just the horror, the terror, that it just might not be actually possible. And as that recedes a couple of weeks, a few weeks into the run, then your brain or my brain will almost try and replace one anxiety with a fabricated anxiety. I don't know why it feels the need to do that, and I wish it didn't, but there's obviously a sense of, when we started doing this, there was a level of white panic that I don't have to quite the same degree now. So I will create it. I will make up the deficit. I will make up the panic deficit <laughs> by telling my brain that even though I've done this for six weeks, I will no longer be able to do it. And I'm a, a bit of my memory is about to drop out and you start rehearsing the speech you're going to have to make to the audience about the fact that you can't do this any longer and that you're going to have to leave your <laughs> dressing room, uh, leave to go to your dressing room and curl up into a, 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 a primal ball and sob yeah. yourself to sleep. Has that ever happened to you or someone on stage? Have you ever, you must have experienced someone drying on stage. I've done it myself, yeah, yeah. Never, never, I've never had an awful, awful one. I've never had one of those sort of career-ending ones. You might have heard about it if I had. I probably wouldn't be here now. <laughs> Um, what I mean by drying, just just in case people at home don't know, it, it is basically just forgetting the forget line or, or losing next. where you are yeah. in a scene. And uh, how did you how did you navigate that? Did other cast members help you out? Or um, I mean, you have sort of many ones at various times, don't you? Um, sure. I, I I've never had one that's really sort of driven everything to a halt. Mm. On the press night of Romeo and Juliet in the Barbican. Because, of course, the way the RSE tends to work is shows tend to open in Stratford and you run them for a while and then uh, maybe even up to a year later you can reopen them in the Barbican Theatre in London often or, or, or other theatres at various times. But when I did Romeo and Juliet, we'd done it in Stratford and then nine months later we reopened the show 
in London. So that's a kind of weird thing where it's the, where it's an opening night, but you have already done all that. So you've yeah. again you've been through the real sort of white anxiety, white hot heat of anxiety, and you're now in a kind of it, it, it's a bit nerve wracking and it's a bit new, but it's also something you know very well. So that's a very uh, for me that's a very dangerous area where the brain starts to make up the panic deficit. So I suppose right. a second press night. Um, it w- was exactly the sort of place where my brain would start playing those tricks on me. And I, I yeah. dried in the middle of Romeo, playing Romeo. And, you know, I can't remember what the actual line was even now. But I just, I had a few lines to go. Not, thankfully, one of the very famous bits. <laughs> um, and I knew what the meaning was, but I had no idea what the words were. So I just yeah. sort of paused dramatically and said, must end elsewhere <laughs> which was a good four line short of whatever it was I was supposed to say <laughs> and mercifully Keith Dunphy who was playing Tybalt figured out what had happened and came roaring on stage <laughs> flailing his sword around and, uh, and we got on with it but then of course you're left in that slight sense of state of shock for the rest of the night um, Greg the artistic director of the RSC mm. who, who've who's directed both of us, yes. he has a very good thing that he says about get rid of the baggage. Yeah, yes, so he does. So if something does happen to you, just just let it go. Yes, but it's easier said um, than done. It's a great bit of advice, but yes, it's, it's all you can do to just kind of go, this yeah. has happened, we're in the middle of the show, we're in the middle of the press night, the critics are sitting there, I just have to go, well, it happened, and move on. Mm. But with something like that, you think, oh, I just, I just dried in the middle of Romeo. Everyone will have noticed. It will be in all the reviews tomorrow. Not a one noticed a thing. No one. Of course, of course. <laughs> now, let me wind back a little, David, because um, I know that you've spoken before about acting and having a love of performing from a very young age. Yeah. Uh, you auditioned for and were accepted by the Royal Scottish Academy of Music and Drama, now, now known as the Royal Conservatoire, at the age of 16. Yeah. And you auditioned with a speech from Hamlet. <laughs> I did. Yeah. Which is a, a brave choice. It is, yeah. <laughs> what, what was the speech? Worse than that, it was a speech from Hamlet. You were supposed to do a classical piece and a modern piece. My modern piece mm-hmm. was Death of a Salesman, playing Willie Loman. Oh, who's, wow. Who's, <laughs> who's a man in his mid-60s. I don't know what I... Well, I was 16. I didn't know what... I, I genuinely didn't know yeah. what I was doing. Did you do it in an elderly American accent? I mean, I, I, probably my 16-year-old <laughs> version of whatever that was. Yeah, I must have done. <laughs> Um, the reason I did um, Hamlet was because it was the only Shakespeare play I really knew because we just studied it for our exams. So I knew I knew right. it. And there was some line in the bump that came through about the audition saying, you will be asked about the play. So I thought, well, right. I've got to do a play that I've studied back yeah. to front. Yeah. So I thought, well, I'll have to do Hamlet. It's the only one I can write an essay about. Um, did you go for one of the big hitters? Was it a soliloquy? Uh, it was a soliloquy. It was Now Might I Do It Pat when, when, oh, when, okay. I'm, when Claudius is praying. Yeah. And he comes in and he sees him. And, he, and I, I took a knife out of our kitchen and I, <laughs> I had it in my hand. I don't know if that, that probably gave them pause that I turned up <laughs> uh, to an audition Paisley. with a kitchen yeah. knife. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, most people from Paisley don't take the knives out of their kitchens. It was quite bold. And, and what would that 16-year-old have thought if you'd told him that 15 years later you'd be playing that role on the stage of the Royal Shakespeare Theatre? Would, would he have believed you? I you were saying 15 years later. I think it was a bit more than that. <laughs> I mean, it's a funny thing at that age, isn't it? Because you have sort of zero expectation and yet 
you sort of believe the world is all very achievable. I'm very grateful that I went to drama school so young and so so green, so naive, because part of the process of being in drama school was being led to believe that one would never work, that it was impossible to get work as an actor and that really uh, you should give up hope, all you who enter here. And at 16, you have the idealism of youth. Uh, I mean, I think if you told me you'll end up playing Hamlet at the RSC, I would have been thrilled beyond measure. But I probably wouldn't have been as surprised at 16 as I would have been at 20, probably, when the realities yeah. of the world of working as an actor had were sort of a bit more keenly felt what what were your preconceptions of the royal shakespeare company did you know that it existed not when i was 16 and in paisley i didn't know i, I, I no. knew it existed but i had no sense of it i never imagined i would ever see a play by them i mean it felt very far away um uh-huh. i think the first rac production i saw was mark rylance playing hamlet which toured to glasgow while i was at drama school right which was quite a good one to start with I bet. Um, because uh, his performance in that role at that time was utterly eye-opening, life-changing, because he was has this ability to make Shakespeare sound so fresh-minted and so alive and so funny and so mm. new uh, and uh, as if it is occurring to him in that moment. Yeah. Um, I hadn't seen a lot of Shakespeare. I'd seen... I'd seen a production of As You Like It that had come to our school that um, had been very exciting, but it, but it hadn't had that real immediacy that, that when, when I saw Mark Rylance doing Hamlet when I was 17, 18, it just blew my mind open. What makes a great classical actor and uh, how do you do that? <laughs> well, I suppose if I'm talking about the, those those performances that first excited me to the idea of being a classical actor, it was certainly Mark Rylance in Hamlet. Also touring to the Theatre Royal Glasgow while I was at drama school was Derek Jacobi playing Richard II. And those two performances, which are very different. I mean, Derek Jacobi and Mark Rylance are very different actors in the way that they approach that sort of classical text, but both of them make it kind of sing. And you, you feel like you understand everything they're saying. Even if some of the words are archaic and unknown to you, there's, they clearly are so connected to what they're saying that it, it, it communicates across the footlights and you understand who that person is, what that person is feeling, and they're entertaining with it and they make those words fresh and new and, and often funny, which I think is a really important way in. Um, and, you know, neither yep. Richard II nor Hamlet are necessarily comedic roles and yet I remember laughing a lot at both of them and that makes them feel human, makes them feel real. Mm. For me, the thing you always have to do is, is, ju- is just understand what you're saying, which sounds ludicrously straightforward, ludicrously sort of simple, simplistic even. But, but I mean really understanding it. So you, you get the meaning of a speech, but then really kind of that phrase, the, the way that word connects to this word in terms of how that meaning translates to a modern ear. Mm. As soon as you unlock that, it just sort of, it kind of, it's like a sort of puzzle box. The whole thing kind of opens up. Uh, and and if, if as an actor you can convey that sense of your understanding to an audience, it just, it, it, then the years fall away, I think. 
you you talk about the importance of comedy there in Shakespeare. You actually joined the company, the the Royal Shakespeare Company, uh, in 1996, and your first part was Touchstone in As You Like It. Is that right? Yes, and I was only six years old, which is remarkable. <laughs> uh, no, yes. So what was that? How did how did you come to audition for the RSC? Is that something that you actively seeked out? It was certainly something I was very excited to to be offered. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. and I was doing, I was I was rehearsing the Glass Menagerie at Dundee Rep at the time, um, and. I needed a day off to go to London to, and Richard Barron, who's a fantastic director in Scotland, has done some of the, my favourite productions, very kindly said, you should go to London and audition for the RSC. So he gave me a day off rehearsals. Well, I had three weeks to put The Glass Menagerie on. Wow. And I went, I, I went down and auditioned for Orlando in As You Like It. And the RSC doesn't do this in quite the same way, but it used to operate on these sort of two yearly cycles and there'd be yeah. about 10 plays all going on at once. And you, you, the, the, there'd be in slots. So you, there'd be four slots and you would be in two or three of the slots over the season. So when you first auditioned, you, you really had to, to, to excite at least two of the directors for, for, to be invited into the company. And then they would try and yes. probably persuade a third director to take you on as well so that you were being used across the company that season. That first season I did, I did one Shakespeare play and two new plays. And it was the new play that got me in because I auditioned for Orlando and was pretty bland and useless. And uh, (laughs) that was for Stephen Pimlock. Then went into the next room and auditioned for Michael Attenborough for a play called The Herbal Bed, Peter Whelan play. Oh, yeah. Which is about, actually, Shakespeare's family, but was a new play that year. Right. And I I auditioned for Jack Lane, who's a sort of... Uh, slightly ne'er-do-well local uh, sort of... He's a kind of spoilt, uh, rich kid. And I, that went really well. Then Michael Attenborough persuaded Stephen Pimlock to have another, other, another look at me. And because that was quite a sort of funny part, I think they thought, well, I mean, he's useless as Orlando, but maybe he could do Touchstone. Right. Which is often seen as a bit of a thankless part lots of very old jokes that aren't funny anymore yeah how do you make those jokes funny oh i don't know i mean they aren't they really aren't <laughs> again one of the great joys of coming to the rsc uh, 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 was especially in 1996 cicely berry the, the world famous voice coach mm. was still very much uh uh working at full power in those days and and i i got to work with her and i i remember sort of going to her going says how do you how do you make these jokes funny and she sort of just encouraged me to just use the rhythms of them because they, mm. it are, they are the sort of rhythms of a stand-up comic, which I suppose have ever been thus. And there is definitely a way that if you phrase something in the right rhythm, you can make an audience laugh at it, even though they clearly don't understand the joke. There's just a sort of way of... It's kind of in there, in the DNA of how we receive lines and how you say lines, that if you, you can kind of trick people into thinking they've just understood a funny joke. So there was right. definitely a bit of that went on with Touchstone. <laughs> um, that, and, you know, I suppose I was very keen. I was very young and very keen. <laughs> so there was a lot of energy and a lot of larking about. And uh, Yeah, I bet. So let's fast forward a few years. You're playing Hamlet. Yeah. At the Royal Shakespeare Company. Yeah. Now, this was in the middle of your stint as the 10th iteration of Doctor yes. Who, a role which I think it's fair to say 
somewhat catapulted you into fame? I mean, you'd played leads on screen before that, but Doctor Who is an, yeah. another beast. Yeah. Does that does that fame change you as a person? I know from your own brilliant podcast, you've asked this of a yeah. lot of your guests, so I assume it's something you're interested mm. in and something that you, of course, have experienced. Does it change your approach to acting? Does it change the way that you live your life? And uh, how does it? I don't think it changes your your approach to acting, um, but it certainly changes how you have to live your life just because you lose anonymity and therefore, you, you know, you can't do certain things in the way that you would. Um, and Doctor Who's a very nice thing to be recognised for because people tend to feel quite benevolently towards it. They, they, they are tend to be fond of it. It's certainly not something right. that divides opinion. People might not love it, but, they do, but very few people dislike it. So it's a nice mm. thing. It's a sort of national institution. And these days it's mm. an international institution and that's very mm-hmm. uh, lovely. And he's, it's a lovely character and, and it's a and very uh, pleasant thing to be associated with. But it is also gets a lot of attention and a lot of scrutiny and, and you know, you, your life carries on day to day, but, but suddenly people are watching it in a way that you haven't experienced before. And uh, yes, it was interesting, something like Hamlet, I was thrilled. It was something that I'd always aspired to. Um, but I had, as you say, I'd, I'd been sort of working my way up the RSC ranks. I'd just done this other stuff in between. Mm. But yeah. that, in a way, the theatre stuff has always felt kind of like the day job. So, right. so that was the kind of um, trajectory in, in one sense that I always felt like I was on or hoped to be on. D- did you ever worry as you're going through some of those moments, that's a bit like the doctor or no. that's not enough like that thing that people like me for? No, I didn't at all. I didn't at all. But, but, but because I suppose what I mean is for me, that was a kind of logical next step. Right. Or, or next aspiration to go from doing something like Antiphilus or Romeo and then, and then to get to play Hamlet. That's sort of what I'd been hoping for, dreaming for, working mm. towards. Yeah. So for me, it felt like it was a continuation of that. But of course, for the rest of the world <laughs> who, do, yeah. who, who yeah. kind of went, oh, he's on our TV on a Saturday night. They were inevitably making more connections between, uh, between the Doctor and Hamlet than I necessarily was. Mm. Um, I, I, and the rest of the world brought that scrutiny to Hamlet, whereas for me, I was just thinking, oh, no, this is, this, I'm back at the RSC, where I, you know, where I feel at home. Um, mm. So there's a, a, maybe a bit of a disconnect there. Um, but it never occurred to me that an audience would come exp- having expectations that were anything other than seeing a version of Hamlet that she's becoming. Mm. I, I think we certainly got types of people coming to see Hamlet who might not otherwise have thought to do so. Um, sure. And there were certainly, I think, probably a slightly younger audience than the RSC might normally have attracted, and that was all something that I was thrilled about. To be honest, if I, you yeah. know, if I can be part of um, proselytizing to a new generation about coming and seeing these plays, <laughs> then 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 that's great. And that's because Greg Greg Doran, who uh, of course directed it, who, who now runs the RSC, put together a very it, a very sort of front footed. Um, easily accessible production. You know, we played it like a thriller. We played it in modern dress. All of those things that that, that perhaps people who didn't know what to expect from a modern Shakespeare production might have been surprised to see. And I think that it never felt like there was a chasm to cross there with with expectations from the audience. It was a brilliant production. I, I saw it twice, once on screen with yourself yeah. 
And um, I was at drama school at the time, oh, yeah. and a bunch of us went to see your press night. Um, and you were strangely absent. Was this the London, the London press night? Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, yeah, no, I mean, in the middle of it, I had this terrible back operation. It was yeah. not how I would have planned it. Well, from knowing you a little bit, you're the last person who I imagine would want to miss oh, the show. No, it's awful. It's all, it's an yeah. awful experience. It's horrible, especially with something like Hamlet opening in London. I mean, you know, these are the things you sort of dream about. Did it end up feeling, I know for other actors, it's felt a very personal thing to play Hamlet. Mm. Was that true of yours? Did you feel that you brought Hamlet to you or did you have to become the Prince of Denmark? I think more than any other part, and I'm sure this is part of the reason why actors talk about it as the sort of ultimate goal somehow, it, it, it just, it, it shrinks to fit and it expands to mm. fit everything you do with it there's right. some there is definitely something a bit magical about that part that it's often been said that sort of nobody can fail in it and i think that's true nobody can fail in it, and yet nobody can entirely get it right either it there's it's just got so much going on in it and it just feels so personal to everyone who does it mm. it feels like a mountain i remember every night mm. coming into the theater going oh god do it again Oh, oh, it always felt like you were sort of, you know, strapping on the crampons to go up the sort of side of some <laughs> edifice. Uh, the minute you stop doing it, you think, oh, I might want to do that again. Uh, I'm playing King Henry VI. Yes. He's actually um, the, the first child king since Richard II. Right, yes. Do you, do you think there's anything particular about playing a Shakespearean king or indeed someone that actually existed did that affect the way that you interpreted that role? Well, I suppose they're, they're each specific to their circumstances, aren't they? Um, mm. I certainly think there's something about that, uh, that, that sense of playing a monarch who believes he is put there divinely by God, which is quite a peculiar mindset. There's not a lot in the modern world that, that we can really... Uh, um, that, that, that has a sort of direct correlation outside a mental illness, really. And that, I think, was interesting mm. to me. That, I, that sense that I, everything I do and say is correct because of who I am, irrespective of whether it is correct or not. That sense that you are infallible, that you are divine, that you are essentially a god, is, mm. is something that I think... Uh, Richard II doesn't handle particularly well. I think, it, you know, that it becomes his d downfall, arguably. Um, right. And I suppose if, you, if you're crowned king from a very young age, if from childhood you are not allowed to be fallible, you are not allowed to make a decision that is incorrect simply because you can't, I mean, that's pretty peculiar and pretty damaging, I would say. Absolutely. I really feel that with Henry. Yeah. What about with um, people that are in very recent memory? I mean, you played Dennis Nielsen recently mm. to great critical acclaim. I know, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about this, but you've just worked on Litvinenko. Yeah. yeah. How does that change? Do you feel more of a, do, do you have to mimic those roles a bit more? Or do you feel uh, a compulsion to be as true as possible to the the lived experience of those people? Yes, I think you, I think you do. Um, I mean, with something like Litvinenko, it, it's such, 
it's so recent, it's so raw, it's so relevant to the world we're living in. What happened to that man and the things that he spent his life talking about and that his wife, Marina, who is an extraordinary human, is still doing um, and mm. is still... You know, the reason we tell that story is because it's 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 so raw and vivid and important um with something like dennis nielsen i guess it's a bit you know it's a bit further back in time uh it's a bit of a period mm-hmm. piece but it's also about that's about a particular psychology and trying to yeah. understand what was sort of wrong there you know what is it about that particular human being that we can't recognize and also slightly more chillingly what about what about that particular human being can we recognize do these people stay with you particularly maybe when you're playing um, troubled or horrific characters. Do, do you sleep well at night? <laughs> Levinyenko has stayed with me more mm. because of uh, meeting Marina and being so aware that this is the life she is still living and that we are recreating something which happened relatively recently, which was devastating to her and to her life and has had such a has entirely transformed what her life since has become. Um, that felt, I, I felt the responsibility of that, of getting that right. Um, mm. And just the sort of the, the you know, uh, the, the horrors that she lived through and that, and that that story signifies our world is still living through. What is the next Shakespeare on the, on the tick list? I've just done Macbeth for Radio 4, ah. yeah. uh, which I've never really had any. Macbeth's weird, but I think if you're Scottish and you do Shakespeare, people assume that Macbeth is your ultimate goal. <laughs> and it's a bit slightly right. arbitrary. I mean, maybe, the, maybe every Italian uh, Shakespearean actor thinks they've got to play Romeo, but we have no expectation that Romeo and Juliet will ever be done in Italian accents. I suppose because, no. you know, Scotland is part of the same country for now at least there there is a sort of sense that as as we can do it in scottish we might as well but it's never been a part that i've thought particularly well suited to actually or or that i've particularly had an aspiration to do so it was really interesting to get a chance to do it in a in a you know because obviously as as you know you do radio productions very quickly and and you you just get to sort of you don't get to you don't get to rehearse or anything it's it's it was it was a lovely way to kind of have a dabble with a part people have often asked me about and I've never really known if it was one for me. Who's, who's appearing as your Lady Macbeth? Daniela Nardini. Ah. Yeah. All Scottish well, people, you see. Otherwise we'd have called you, Mark. Okay. <laughs> I've, I have actually played a Scottish Malcolm before. Have you? With um, James McAvoy's Macbeth. Oh, right, right. And, uh, and we had Claire Foy as, as Lady M. And, um, was she doing was, a Scottish accent as well? She was. Right. We, I think we were the only two non-Scots who right, somehow right. sneaked in. <laughs> right. How, how is I, your Scottish accent these days? I'm not going to do good, it. Isn't it? <laughs> no, I think it's quite well, good. I, think I, had good the benefit of, I had the benefit of 20 other Scots to help sure. me out. Um, but I do, I do think it gave something to that play. I mean, yeah. Maybe it was just that it was a post-apocalyptic production and it was very visceral and um, aggressive. And so um, I, I was grateful to have the Scottish vowels as opposed to my own RP, which, which of course is the seen as the traditional way of doing Shakespeare. But it would have, in Elizabethan times, it would have sounded much more akin to your accent or a, a northern accent or um, 
or a West Country accent, maybe. What are your ones? What are your aspirational ones? Now you've done uh, I, Henry the Sixth. Well, you're about to do Henry the Sixth. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm about to climb that mountain yes. with the crampons. Yes. So, so I, I can't really think beyond that at the moment. But, but certainly, um, Richard the Second is a part that for, for me has a lot of. You'd be juice very to good it. at that. Yeah, I can so see you. Some doing of that. those words. They are great. Yeah. While we're talking about language, you've said that in part you got Doctor Who because you felt you had a feel for the rhythm of Russell T. Davis's writing. Yeah. Um, now, you and I worked together last year on a TV drama written by Stephen Moffat, yes. who, of course, is very well known as a prolific showrunner and writer for Doctor yeah. Who. Uh, and it seems to me you have, you have quite a long list of writers that you've worked with again and again throughout your career, including, of course, Shakespeare. Yeah. Is there something that you learn more about a writer or their words the more you work on them? Do you, do you feel like you develop some sort of acting shorthand or is it all still instinct? That's interesting. I don't know that I necessarily know the answer to it. Um, I mean, certainly what's interesting, you, Stephen Moffat and Russell T. Davis both write characters. I think they tend, because of the people they are, they tend to write characters who are bright and clever and think quickly mm -hmm. and have uh, not, I don't mean every character they write is like that but the sort of the kind of average that human beings exist at in a Stephen Moffat or a Russell T Davis world is cleverer than the average in the real world which is part of what's yes. joyous about doing their scripts because you get to be right. a clever person like they are <laughs> um, and that's true of Shakespeare as well I think just that that sort of swiftness of thought um, and I do love writing like that because yeah. you get to be you get to be a, a, a person who's on fire, you know, a, a person who ha, who can who can make those. You can get be, to be a person sort of better than you are, you know, a person who can right. make connections quicker than you can, who can say funnier things than you can. You you, you get to aspire. You get to play at being a a, a, a cleverer, faster, more thrilling individual. Um, and I think Shakespeare and Russell and Stephen are, are very good at giving you those moments so um uh yes i i very much enjoy uh write, working on scripts by all three of them because there are all various schools of thought about how to play shakespeare aren't there and how to play the verse and how loyal you have to be to the iambic pentameter and the line endings and the and i've always thought i'm quite cavalier about that and then when we did macbeth on the radio i found i'm absolutely not i've obviously and this has obviously happened Gradually, because I never sort of made a decision to be terribly... Uh, uh, Formulaic. Yes, exactly. Uh, yes. Or, 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 or to, to acknowledge line endings, to, to be yeah. looking for the caesuras, to be And yet I found myself... And Macbeth's an interesting one because it's, he, 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 chops, he chops the thoughts up. All the thoughts change in the middle of a line. Is this going to get very nerdy and actory? It probably is. But, but, but whereas with, even with something like Hamlet, the thoughts are often sort of, uh, the thoughts change at the end of a line. In Macbeth, they almost always change in the middle of a line. So if you, you sort of change direction mid-sentence and then there's a pause, the line ending sort of chops the thoughts up. And I found myself sort of finding it very difficult to not honour that. Um... And I don't know if that was good or bad. At times it felt like it was making it quite difficult to make sense of things. But I think that's part of what's going on in Macbeth, interestingly. It's, it's interesting that you say that that was just an experiential thing 
I guess so. I guess it's crept up on me. Like if I was asked to run a thought along the line, I thought, no, but I can't because there's a line ending there and there must be a reason why there's a line ending there. And the, the bardolatry can get a bit much. The sense that the sure. idea that Shakespeare never, you know, had these inviolate rules that he always worked by. I'm sure there were other times where he just went, oh, I can't fit all that in one line, so I'll run it into two. Well, that's it. And depending on which version you read, you might have to be or not to be, I, there's the point. Well, quite. Uh, <laughs> which at least scans a bit better than to be or not to be, yeah. the question. <laughs> um, so, but, but with all that in mind, I clearly have, uh, over the years, got more and more interested in trying to honour the, the, the ambic, ambic pentanator and the, and the line endings and the... Let me ask you a little bit about imposter syndrome. <laughs> You've spoken a bit about um, th- that at any point in your career, there's that voice that in your head that tells you someone's going to come any minute to tap you on the shoulder and say, that's enough. Back you go. Yeah. And, and in fact, you said that voice only gets louder. How loud is that voice for David Tennant right now? <laughs> I'm waiting on the doorbell to ring right now. I'm waiting on the acting. Well, surprise, please. surprise. <laughs> This is the end of your acting career. Off you pop. Yeah, we got you. We've been tolerating you for all this time. (laughs) And now we've had enough. I've always thought that good actors have this strange blend of uh, inner conviction in what they're doing and self-belief and also crippling doubt. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. So so if you were, you're not going to be, don't worry. But if you were (laughs) tapped on the shoulder, what would David Tennant be doing next year if he... uh, well, terrifying. I don't know because I, I, you know, there comes a point where you think it's a bit late to retrain as something else, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, what would I do? Well, wh- how about if if you hadn't got into the Royal Scottish yeah. Academy and you decided, oh, that that was a ludicrous idea? I probably would have gone to university and studied English, maybe if if they'd let me in. I mean, that was the one subject mm-hmm. at school that I managed to do quite well at. Um, mm-hmm. Where that would have taken me, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, English teaching, I suppose, would be the sort of obvious thing. Um, I don't know that I'm a writer, so I don't know. It's hard to know where I would have ended up. Now, as you know, David, I am a fan of trivia games. So it seems only right that we play a short game. Uh, This this is one you can play at home. I, I call it... Shakespeare or who? Oh, no. You can probably see, see where I'm, I'm going, going to get with this. this so badly. I'm going to fail at this so I've badly. I've also made it really hard, so oh, I apologise. Okay. But I figure we're going to have, there are going to be some serious Shakespeare and Doctor Who fans yes. here. So, so uh, this is, it's very simple. Okay. I'm going to read you a quotation okay. and all I need is Shakespeare or I who. I feared that's what this was going to be. Okay. You can have bonus points if you can tell me what episode or play they're from. <gasps> wow. I'll, I'll give you a clue. They're all episodes or plays that you've been in, but not right. necessarily your own line. Okay, fine, fine, fine. I don't remember lines ever. I wipe my brain very quickly. Unlike your Judy Dentures, who can recite the entirety of Midsummer yeah. Night's Dream, I can't remember a line I said last week. I'm just I'm putting that out there as a disclaimer. If I do very badly, in you've got a fifty-fifty chance. Yeah, so that's true. Say it, say it with conviction. It's true. Okay. Yeah. Question yeah, okay. one. Time travels in diverse paces with diverse persons. That's Shakespeare. That is. Yeah. Uh, do you want to guess the play? Ah, uh, no. It's as you like it, the, and it's Rosalind from Act That's Three. That's why I knew. One, I knew one, it was in there somewhere. One. Okay, there you go. Question two: The prophecies of women are limited and dull. 
Prophecies of Women are limited. That sounds like Doctor Who to me. Correct. Thank you. That was from the Fires of Pompeii. Pompeii. 2008. Yeah, there you go. Two out of two. I'll give you a bonus point for that as well. Thank you. Um, It is the breathing time of day with me. Oh, that's Shakespeare. Which play? (sighs) Oh. It's It's a biggie. Yeah. Is it from Hamlet? It is. Another bonus point. It's from Act 5, Scene 2. It's a really obscure line. I'm very impressed you got that. It's definitely tucked away in there somewhere. I recognised it. (laughs) Reason tells me you cannot be real. Oh, I'm going to say that's Doctor Who. Correct. Thank you. That is... uh, I mean, this is a tricky Uh, episode. Now, that would be something like... We're going back in yeah, time. Uh, that would be uh, the one about the werewolf. No, it's the girl in the fireplace, oh. 2006. Yeah, okay. Okay, last one. Okay. If angels fight, weak men must fall. Isn't that Richard II? It certainly is. Thank you. Oh, I did better than I thought. Act three, scene two. You've got five out of five oh. with a few bonus points oh, as well. Oh, very good. Very good. Very impressive. Okay, I'm going to give you now a, a, some quick-fire, rapid questions. Oh, okay. Single-word answers, okay, okay, please. Okay, okay, okay. I'm going to try and not uh, edit myself. Okay. Yeah. Stage or screen? Oh, I don't know. Both. I do want both. <laughs> I would be... I, I'm greedy for both. Okay. History, comedy or tragedy? Tragedy. Fantasy or naturalism? I like to bring an element of naturalism to my fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> Hero or villain? Hero. London or Glasgow? I can't answer that because I'll get into trouble, <laughs> which may tell you what the answer is. Morning or evening? Ooh, used to be evening. Now I've got too many kids, it's morning. Shakespeare or Sorkin? <gasps> They're both the same. <laughs> <laughs> I know that you're a huge fan yeah. of the latter. Well, of both of yeah. them. Iago or Macbeth? Iago. To be or not to be? It's got to be to be, isn't it? Because otherwise, what's the point? Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. The performance is about to continue. As the interval bell rings... Who, alive or dead, would you like to have your next interval drink with and why? I'd like it to be with you, Mark. I'd like it to be in person oh. rather than down the line. Well, hopefully we, we may be able to do that. Um, if not at the RSC, then. Yeah. And I hope we're staying for the interval. I hope it's not like that terrible show I saw with <laughs> Greg Doran. <laughs> I would be thrilled to have an interval drink with you and let's hope that happens very soon. Join us next week when sound designer Claire Windsor will be meeting composer and musician Femi Tomoe. Remember, you can listen again to past episodes on the Royal Shakespeare Company website. Search RSC Interval Drinks to listen to more episodes, including Series 1 of Interval Drinks. Interval Drinks